If you're anything like me, you love a good heist movie. The truth is, you usually know exactly what you're going to get, what the structure is going to be. It draws you in with the recruitment stage. We meet the cast of criminals, their specialized skill sets. Then there are the montages, these wonderful planning montages that get you invested in the plan and the scheme. And finally, when they pull off this impossible heist, it is just so satisfying. It's like eating your favorite dessert. You know exactly what you ordered, and you would like two of them, please. All the better when a heist is set at a world-famous museum, and the object of desire is a centuries-old painting. These heists usually involve the kind of criminal who wears expensive suits and knows how to talk their way out of any situation. And then when these modern-day Robin Hoods get away with millions of dollars in stolen art, the audience is always rooting for them. But that concept of this elegant, gentlemanly thief, um, perhaps even nonviolent, who's stealing art for the thrill of it, that is almost entirely an invention of fiction. That's Noah Charney. He is a professor and academic specializing in art crime. He spent much of his life's work helping catch the very criminals that movies portray as so debonair and elusive. And while life is not like the movies, sometimes truth is more intriguing than fiction. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we delve into the world of art theft with Noah as our expert guide. He will walk us through one of the most notorious real-life art thieves and his lasting impact. More after this. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Art crime may seem like a little bit of a niche field. And it is. These days, Noah is the author of over 20 books on the topic. And when he was in school, there wasn't much written about art crime at all. He became one of the very first people to establish the topic as its own area of study. So I have a crazy and fortuitous origin story. So I was doing postgraduate studies in England, studying traditional art history, iconography, which is the study of symbols in art. And two things happened. One is I read The Da Vinci Code, and I was really annoyed by the historical and factual inaccuracies in it, but I also couldn't stop reading it. 
And the other was the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, the one starring Pierce Brosnan, which is a super slick, incredibly well done art heist film. During postgraduate studies at the University of Cambridge, he managed to get a literary agent, and the rest was history. He wrote his first book, The Art Thief, and it became an international bestseller. And while doing research for the book, he realized just how little was out there about art theft from a more academic perspective. I couldn't find a single PhD supervisor anywhere in the world who had a level of expertise in it. And so I shifted gears and I switched from studying art history to the history of art theft. The New York Times featured Noah in an article in 2006. And after that, folks started looking to him for advice. And he began looking into a question that I was also curious about. Why do people steal art? It's got a complicated answer. So if we go back in time to the Victorian era, um, there was a hierarchy among criminals as to what was cool to be involved in. So we have bank robberies, you know, at a time when it was before the inventional widespread use of alarms. And you have people who are safe crackers who could listen to tumblers falling into place to crack open a safe just through pure skill. Um, and then we have things like jewelry heists were very high end. Um, and theft of art was also considered high end because art has always been considered uh, collectible of the erudite and the wealthy. And so if you're a criminal acquiring these objects, some of that rubs off on you. You know, criminals are really proud of being involved in art theft even today. Most stolen objects are recovered thanks to these criminals' hubris. Paid informants put their ear to the grapevine, and what they hear is criminals bragging about what they stole. Because of this, the risk-reward ratio for art crime is distinctly off-balance. There's almost never been anyone in known history who is really a professional full-time art thief. There's some people who like to call themselves that because it sounds quite sexy, and they've been involved in art theft on multiple occasions. But criminals don't know that. Criminals watch the same movies we do. Um, and they have this idea that, you know, it's super cool to be a, an art thief and that there are criminal collectors out there who will buy objects that everyone knows were stolen. And in fact, there have been hardly any in known history who fit that bill. But that hasn't stopped criminals from stealing on the assumption that they can find them. So it's an interesting instance of basically fiction leading criminality. So is there such a thing as a successful art theft? I mean, it feels a little like the more valuable the piece, the harder it is to succeed at, at your endeavor, at least at making money. That's exactly right. But we have to look at misconceptions on the part of criminals about the existence of what we refer to as Dr. No figures. Dr. No refers to Dr. Julius No, the mechanical hand-having villain of the very first James Bond movie. When they show his underground lair in that film, you can see works of art on the walls that were actually stolen at the time of filming. So we use the term Dr. No for this concept of um, an art collector who's willing to buy objects they know is stolen. And that has almost never happened in history. I say almost never. I can think of a few dozen examples, which is negligible in contrast to the tens of thousands of art thefts reported every year worldwide. Those few examples, well, not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, 
have had a lasting influence on the way we think about art crime today. Take Adam Worth, also known as the Napoleon of crime. He was certainly a millionaire by today's standards. He lived in a palace in Kensington Gardens in London. Um, He was involved in high society. Um, And nobody knew that he was running this organized crime group, you know, from behind closed doors. It's hard to be really upset with someone who has this admirable element to their life as sort of a hard luck story. And then also someone who was so determined to be moral and nonviolent while still breaking the law. It's the sort of criminal that you sort of feel like it's okay to to cheer for, even if you are um, officially disapproving of the criminality. In the late 1800s, Adam Worth pulled off the ultimate heist and in the process became the basis on which all modern art criminal archetypes are really built. It's uh, late at night in May in 1876 in London, and this is the London of Sherlock Holmes with uh, heavy fog and lanterns hanging in the darkness. And along Old Bond Street, a very little guy with a big handlebar mustache and a very large guy are walking down through the fog, and they reach 82 and a half Old Bond Street, which was the Thomas Agnew Art Gallery. And the Agnew Gallery had just been in international newspaper headlines because Agnew had just acquired what was then the most expensive artwork in the world, which is Portrait of Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire by Thomas Gainsborough. The oil painting features the Duchess turned left as her face looks slyly to the center frame. She has long, light brown hair bundled under an elaborate black hat and is wearing a white gown that comes up to her chin. The art dealer, Agnew, had made a deal to sell this painting to another famous person. Junius Morgan. Junius Morgan is the founder of the Morgan Bank. Um, His son, J.P. Morgan, is probably the more famous one. But Junius Morgan had hired a genealogist to look into his background and found out that he was distantly related to the Spencer family. This is the family of Princess Di. And one of her ancestors was this woman, Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire. Georgiana was also famous in a similar way to Princess Diana. She was a popular gossip subject. And because of this, the portrait sold for what was at the time a world record price of 10,000 guineas. Today, it would equal about $1.5 million. Honestly, a steal in the modern art market. The price, and of course the royal ties, made the piece even more valuable to Junius Morgan. So it was sort of plastic proof he actually was blue-blooded. But there was a two-week period when Agnew was going to show the painting at his gallery before the Morgans would acquire it. And during this period, Adam Worth arranged to steal the painting. Adam didn't just decide to steal the painting for no reason. His brother, John Worth, was not as skilled in the criminal arts. And when John got arrested, Adam brainstormed for ways to get his brother out of prison. He decided that stealing the most expensive painting in the world would be enough leverage for blackmail. And he chose Thomas Agnew, the art dealer, as his target. So Adam Worth was the little guy with a handlebar mustache. And he walks up to Agnew Gallery. And the big guy was his bodyguard. And the big guy lifts him up to the window ledge. He's got a crowbar. He pries open the upstairs window. The guard was on duty, but he was on the ground floor and didn't notice anything. And he slips inside and he cuts the canvas out of its frame. He rolls it up. He climbs out down the window and disappears into the misty London night. Um, And that was the the opening heist of our imagined film uh, about Adam Worth. 
But then, amazingly, John Worth was released from prison, no blackmail required, and this left Adam with a painting and without a plan. So all of a sudden, Adam Worth had the world's most expensive painting, and he didn't have anything to do with it. Then it gets a little complicated. He wound up keeping it for more than a decade. He managed to get himself arrested. Um, and when he got out of prison, he was destitute. And the only thing he had was the world's most expensive painting. He hid it in a closet in Brooklyn. And then we have this nice little coda. He shows up one day at the Pinkerton Agency and wants to speak with William Pinkerton. And Adam Worth tells him his life story. And William Pinkerton, very much inappropriately, but sort of romantically, decides he's going to help Worth out. And he brokers a deal between now J.P. Morgan, because Junius Morgan had passed away. And J.P. Morgan buys this painting from Adam Worth, who had stolen it. And that's Adam Worth's nest egg to retire with. Well, this kind of story is what sets the fictional template that then art criminals go out and <laughs> might steal stuff now and find out that it doesn't necessarily work out quite as romantically as it did in Adam Worth's case. That's exactly right. And and maybe even more directly than you realize. So, so Maurice Leblanc was a crime novelist and short story writer, and he invented a character named Alcine Lupin or Arsene Lupin, who was partly based on Adam Worth. And this was a gentleman cat burglar who stole jewels and art and was elegant, acrobatic, um, aristocratic, uh, nonviolent. And um, these were huge bestsellers around the Francophone world. Um, and it was interesting because they are really the point of origin for the cliche that we now associate with art thieves that is really the realm of fiction and film. And it begins with these stories, which were inspired by Adam Worth's real adventures. It is these stories, stories like Adam Worth stealing one of the most famous paintings in the world and then keeping it in his closet in Brooklyn. These are the reason audiences have been captivated by art heists for centuries now. And truthfully, Noah cannot get enough either. Why is art crime this thing that seems to have grabbed you and, and really, to a large degree, never let go? Because I always want to teach in a way that doesn't feel like you're learning in the negative sense. It should feel like you're being entertained. And by the end of it, oh my goodness, I learned a lot of things without, without feeling like I had to put in any work. So it's got the two halves of detective work, analyzing the art itself and the art as an object that is literally involved in crimes. If you are interested in learning more about art crime, how to maybe successfully steal that Renaissance painting instead of getting caught like everyone else, we uh, have the answer for you. Noah works closely with us at Atlas Obscura to teach online courses all about the history of art theft and art forgery. His next course, called How to Steal the Mona Lisa, A History of Art Theft with Noah Charney, begins on November 7th. If you are interested in enrolling, you can use the code ARTCRIMEPOD for 15% off. That's ARTCRIMEPOD. To learn more about Noah's courses and the other ones we have available, you can click on the Courses tab at atlasobscura.com or you can click the link in the show notes. I'll see you next time.
This episode was produced by Gabby Gladney. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire, Amanda McGowan, Johanna Mayer. Our technical director is Casey Holford. And this episode was sound designed by Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.